2: This episode of the Racket Magazine Podcast is brought to you by Sergio Ticchini, offering iconic tracksuits, classic polos, and the new Young Line sneaker. Originally designed in the mid-1980s, it's our favorite spring silhouette and it's back. You can get it now at SergioTicchini.com and follow them on Instagram at Sergio underscore official for updates. Enter the promo code RacketMAG at checkout, and you'll get 30% off
0: your order.
1: I'm bad enough to have a career-winning percentage of, I think, 65 percent.
3: Started it. Me too. Um, well, I'm two cocktails in. Well, I am drinking water because I'm being sensible. What? New Yorker. No, I'm not. I'm joking. You're I'm drinking, drinking tequila. Straight tequila. Yes, yeah, thank you. I'm not drinking straight tequila. I was like, have I met you before? You're drinking water? I am drinking tequila with soda and a splash of lime, fresh You're lime. A classy lady. I am a classy lady. Now for people out there that don't realise, tequila and soda is the best alcohol that you can drink because uh, A, it's not fattening. B it does not give you a hangover because it is a It is not a depressant. It is an actual bit of an upper. Yeah, it's a stimulant. Tequila is a stimulant. It's the only uh, alcohol. It's plant-based. So what happens is it's why a lot of people say that they tend to end up taking their clothes off after drinking a lot of tequila. Well, this is a good reminder for me to get out of here before you get nude after we take this intro. You and I are friends, Caitlin. That's true. Uh, I'm drinking a whiskey soda. Cheers. You are drinking a, a drink that will definitely take you down a rabbit hole of hell. It, I mean, it,
2: it wouldn't be the first time, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to see your face. We're socially distanced.
3: We're across the room from each other, but... I know, we are socially distanced, even in my apartment. Um, true. It's been a crazy month. It's been a month. It's been more than a month. It's been six
2: weeks. In and let me month? tell you something. Since we started this podcast now, three seasons going, so more than two years, we have talked about getting Andy Roddick on the show Andy Roddick is funny, Andy Roddick is intelligent, Andy Roddick is charismatic, Andy Roddick is a Grand Slam winner and Hall of Famer. Uh, He happens to be a fantastic talker. There really is no excuse for us waiting this long to get Andy Roddick on the podcast, except what an incredible time that we got him on the podcast. He's home with his children, his wife, and he can react to some of this insane news that's going on in the tennis world because we got Andy Roddick sort of talking about the topicality of tennis as it's sort of rediscovering itself or reinventing itself during this incredible time.
3: I know. And, you know, for a lot of people that remember, obviously, Andy, when he played, he was at times a little controversial with certain things that he would say in the press or he wouldn't give the press anything at all. Like they would ask him because, you know, listen, you and I have our issues with sometimes with the questions that are asked in press conferences, including myself. Um, And I've been in those situations where you're like, do you even watch tennis? Um, But... He he pushed the envelope a lot. He didn't stand for sort of stupid, yeah, right. Um, and rather than like dumb himself down to answer the questions, he would just kind of throw it back at them.
2: He would school journalists on the regular, which they deserve. Tennis journalists are almost entirely terrible, and totally. Andy made them uh, out to be the boobs that
3: they almost always are. Totally. So, but the thing that about him now is that he's actually he's never like that. He's actually very serious about talking about whatever it is you know and you always kind of think he's going to joke about it because I also know him in a personal sense and he is a jokester and he does like to jab people and whatever if you bring up something he'll jab back but he's so much more um, I think he's a lot different person now he's obviously a dad and you know married and you know certainly matured a lot and he's gone through a a bit in his own life losing his father quite young Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that his outlook on everything now is very different to what it was maybe 20 years ago um because i think he realizes that he is quite an important voice in the world of tennis yeah um, so he takes himself seriously um with the things that he says and i just think it's great like he, he actually has he, he's not a guy that just says it he actually has he says it knowing if you want to ask him a, a, a question in return he yeah. has an answer for it and that is a guy that's actually done research He's actually thought about what he's going yeah. to say. Um, and I was kind of taken back a little bit, Some a bit of how he answers certain questions. So I thought, wow, he's really thoughtful on these things now. And it's so nice to see. Yeah,
2: yeah, completely right. I think everybody who is about to listen to this, knowing what they know about Andy Roddick, will not be surprised that he's funny, will not be surprised that he's well-spoken, will not be surprised that he has quick comebacks. But what was really striking to me about your chat with him is just He's such. He's got incredible tennis IQ. Yeah. The way he pays attention, the details, understanding the game, the mechanics. I mean, he could be a coach from what you guys talked about very easily, just given how un, you know depth, in depth his knowledge is. But also. He, I think, has emerged as an elder statesman of the game. And the game is in need of leaders like him. Yeah. And, you know, I think they, they're in need of
3: leaders like him that are actually really thoughtful in the, in the big picture, yeah. not just the me picture. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times tennis players tend to be in the me picture. Well, how is this going to affect me? Right. Um, even the top players, even though they're trying to do the right thing, they're still thinking a little bit about themselves. Sure. But also in the fact that, look, they're happy, they're healthy, they're rich, yep. really rich. So they don't really have to put a lot of thought into it. Um, but he goes a little bit deeper, and I think that's because of his foundation and everything that he's just put into his life. He realizes he's not the center of attention. Um, but yeah, he's just uh, he's a, he's a good guy. And um, Well, listen, I always respect a
2: man who marries well and knows that he well, he's is, smart should hair. listen to uh, a very intelligent woman, which he does. He also has a humility to him. And look, this is one of the best tennis players who's ever picked up a racket. Um, and the fact that he spent a lot of his career uh, in second place to you know arguably the greatest player of all time is to take nothing away from his incredible accomplishments the finals the grand slam and the fact that he is um, one of the game's most thoughtful and uh, refreshing voices so i'm really happy we finally got him on the show
3: yeah i mean and he and he, you know to his credit um he says that you know i i've he has said yes to the podcast for a long time. It's, it was more about us getting our shit together, yeah. uh, which is 100% true. But he, um, I don't know, Andy's just, uh, yeah, he's, he's, just a, he's just the guy that you always want to have around. Well, um, we
2: have to definitely get him back on the show to do Yeah, I have to two. do a part
3: two. Here's the thing about him, and here's the only issue that I had, and you and I spoke about it, um, is that I had, like, I always write down a few questions that I really want to talk about or subjects that I really want to get into with certain players um, and I, had, I knew that there would not be short enough answers to the questions yeah. because he's so thoughtful in his answers that he gives. And there were so many questions that I wanted to ask him about. I wanted to ask him so many more things. But because he's so eloquent with the way he actually thinks about the answer, right. I was like, God damn it. I had to leave like 10 or 15 things out. Um, so, I, Andy, if you do listen to this, I we want you back because we have to do there's so many more things we want we
2: have to i'll tell you what let's leave it here we should do a live event with andy roddick very few people as anyone who has seen one of his press conferences knows is as quick on their feet as self-aware as funny as humble but also as prescient as andy roddick so i think we should plan on doing a live event at some point whenever we're allowed to hang out with each other again uh, and get Andy back on the show. Maybe we'll, co- we'll go to Texas for you, Andy. How about that?
3: Uh, uh, we'll go to Texas or North Carolina. He spends a lot of time down there with his wife uh, and her family as well because they have a, a, a house we'll there. We'll go to your birthplace of we'll o- Omaha, wherever. Nebraska, wherever you need us we'll, to be. We'll go to wherever you need us to go because we love you. I thank uh, my friend Andy Roddick for joining me on the Racket Magazine podcast. I've been begging you to do this for a while, and now you're stuck in quarantine, so there's no getting away from it.
1: That's uh, not true. I feel like you've canceled this as often as I have.
3: Oh, that's true. I just wanted to make, you know, make myself feel better about it. fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. You've always uh, been willing to do it, and it's just uh, catching you at a time, which is a good time. So I guess I have to ask you, you know, what's, what's been going on in the... Uh, erotic household with the pandemic with the kids um it's kind of crazy for both of you and Brooke because you're not traveling
1: yeah so we we, we've kind of talked about it um you know in similar to to you i'm guessing i I don't know that there's been a month since i was 13 where i haven't gotten on an airplane right so it's uh it's it's strange but we're we're great you know this is the most time we've ever spent together and we've kind of noticed that uh the opposite of most couples when we spend more time together it's actually better for us (laughs) i have a lot of buddies who are like i gotta get out and for us it's great because we're not juggling uh we've taken out like kind of the logistical challenges of our marriage and kids and everything else for for five weeks and so you know it's 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 tough but we we certainly really you know we realize we have it you know easier than than most you're sitting in uh, new york city right now and so um it's it's been it's been it's been good for us it's been it's been a, a fun experience even though um it's also frustrating and uh you know, everyone's kind of dealing with uh with it
3: what you're saying is that you still actually still like each other
1: yeah most of the time which is better than you know listen she should be given a, a medal um what is just, it 11 years 11 well we've been married 11 years we've been together probably 13 years now so that's that's It shows her level of patience in general, I think.
3: That deserves a a golf clap. And and, uh, (laughs) what people don't understand is that I'm actually interviewing you on Zoom uh, and recording it. And in the background of what I see of your head is like, looks like the 18th hole of a golf course. So that's kind of why that reference came out. Um, (laughs) But, okay, so um, a lot of people, I mean, obviously people that follow you know, but um, you are originally a Nebraska boy. Um, I want to know how... the kid from Nebraska ended up playing tennis. Like what was that all about? And I know obviously your, your bro- older brother, John was very involved in tennis. Yeah. How did that come about?
1: So my parents were kind of big on uh, one individual sport, at least one team sport just because they thought it, they taught different things, right. There's like the self-reliance of, of, of tennis and the value of, you know, not being able to pass it off when it's you know, basically they thought it, it taught a little bit of responsibility and, um, they thought there was some social equity in, in, in team sports. And so honestly, it was as simple as the closest thing to us was like this this old rundown indoor tennis center uh, down the street in Omaha. So my brother would go there and I was only four, so I didn't really play, but I would go like throw tennis balls at like Snoopy cutouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was it. And then we we left there. We went to Texas when I was about four years old. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, my experience there was limited. So uh, I, I don't know is the, the first answer. The second answer was my, my parents... Proximity one on uh, their kind of thing of wanting us to have an individual sport and a team sport.
3: Okay, so I got to know your brother pretty well um, at some stage, and he told me a funny story. And I don't know if this is true or he's just—it <laughs> could be bullshit, as you know. John could do a lot, little bit of that, but um, he told me I, I don't know how your serve came about, but he said you know how Andy came about with that service motion because it is an unusual service motion. It's a really quick <laughs> start, right? He <laughs> said he was dicking around because he was giving you a hard time. Cause you were a bit of a scrawny kid. You really couldn't hit the ball hard. And he said that you sort of dicked around and threw the ball up really fast and like just tried to pound the serve down as hard as you could jokingly.
1: And yeah.
3: Said, uh, do that again.
1: Is that true? Yeah. So that's, that's pretty accurate. I think the context was, I was actually playing, uh, I think I was practicing with Marty, uh, fish when we were in high school and I was getting drummed like I normally did with Marty in high school. And, uh, yeah, same. But but I threw it up, just hit it as hard as I could, it went in and that was that was kind of it.
3: So the motion got quicker and and Well
1: it used to be it used to be kind of like what you would consider like a standard motion where you take everything down together, you know, you get into the trophy position, your feet, you know, you, you you slide your back foot up and the whole thing, and then uh, it just became this little short violent move, which for me was easier to repeat.
3: I mean, I, when he told me that, I was just kind of crazy because, I mean, it obviously was your signature shot. So I think that, I don't know what that says as as far as like go, taking a kid onto a tennis court and coaching them. I mean, what does that say to you?
1: Well, I, I think there's there's this like fascination with trying to, and, and you see more tennis than I do nowadays, so you'd probably know better, but I, I think there's this fascination with trying to turn people into a certain someone as far as technique goes, right? So, if someone had micromanaged Johnny Mack, would he have played the way he did? If someone had tried to make Rafa finish every forehand over his shoulder instead of the buggy whip where it finishes behind his ear, you know what would that look like? For me, it's it's can you repeat it? Will it hold up under pressure? And do you have the footwork to actually put you in position to repeat it? Um, mm-hmm. If you can kind of answer those three questions, I could actually care less how you hit as long as it's uh repeatable you know so you can have people who have great technique but just fall to pieces you know uh, under a certain thing and you have people who kind of look uglier but it's I think of like a Jim Furyk in golf where it's the ugliest swing you've ever seen but he can repeat it over and over and over and over and he knows exactly what it is he's not going to be the longest hitter but he basically found a way uh to be effective and so I, I actually this is going to be a terrible thing to say. And I'm sure 99% of the tennis community will disagree with me. I actually think the technique is overrated being set and all the things surrounding a given technique are probably underrated.
3: Yeah. I think, I think what could be said about that, I don't disagree with you. I think it's probably more along the lines of, can you repeat it? And is it going in? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is it going in and are you getting results? And if you're not getting results and as you said, if it's breaking down under pressures,
1: you know, yeah. like
3: Billy Jean King always says, Bad technique breaks down under pressure, but if you have the repeatability under pressure and it works, then fuck, that goes out the door, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, and to, to expand on what you just said, I, I think if you have something ugly, but on your bad days, you can find the meat of the court right, and put it in play kind of like what you're saying, that's probably more beneficial than someone flashy on good days hitting winners. And I think, I, I think the trade-off with coaches isn't there. I'd rather have someone who can kind of find the court on, on gross, ugly days where you're not feeling great.
3: Well, I, I kind of jumble around. I have so many questions I want to ask you because, you know, I, I just, I know you're such a great tennis brain, but you're also funny as hell. But, um, you know, one of the things I read about you doing a little preparation for this, I can't believe I actually said that, like I need to prep for you. But
1: Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's more than I thought you'd give me.
3: Well, actually, to be honest with you, you think you might be the first one I've ever prepped for because you have such a great, like, story, and you're, there's so many, like, fun stories about you. But one of the things you said, you wish you'd had Larry Stefanko coach, coach you a lot more. Why? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he was – it's weird. Like, I, I picked different things from – and I got to be around a lot of amazing tennis brains. I would say he was probably the most complete, right? And he had the he, – he was the, the best at seeing – trying to see what he was willing to coach through your eyes and with what you had. So he's one of the only guys who – you know, you, you see uh, – uh, I love Paul Anacombe, but he, he is great with a player like a Pete or – or like a Roger, or but and he's the best at that kind of skill set. Yeah. Um, Larry has kind of coached Rios, who is temperamental, moody, bitchy, but unbelievably talented. Lefty, short. He's coached Tim Henman, who is the opposite personality from Rios. Super polished, you know, super courteous. Opposite game, opposite hand. Uh, Johnny Mac, saying the personality. So uh, Fernando Gonzalez plays different than than all of them. Um, you know so for me it was it was an attractive quality when I was looking for a coach later on in my career Uh, basically how can I take what I have and how can we mold that but all the while not losing an identity where I feel like most coaches take their skill set and the way they see it and apply it towards the player
3: yeah yeah I agree I I think that and also Larry um, to me because I know Larry played team tennis with Larry
1: yeah
3: (laughs) Um, is that he he's a good listener as well he's able Mm -hmm. to take in what you're saying to him and be able to put it back out on the court. Um, I want to go through your career a little bit. Um, obviously, in 03. Okay, so you win the US Open in 03. We'll, we'll get to that. But I want to know, leading up to the US Open, because I want to uh, us to jab our friend here a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think confidence came from you winning Cincinnati and uh, beating someone particularly in the final.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I... It was. I think it was maybe even before that. Uh, but I had switched, and, and, and Brad Gilbert started coaching me, and it was. Uh, it, it was a great fit. It, it was confidence right away. It felt like it was very rushed, but I got kind of caught up in, in that relationship, and it, it was like a downhill snowball. Uh, one Queens, semi, Wimby. I think I won four out of five events before the Open, and then and then the Open. It was it was just kind of a rush of blood. But the, the, the specific match against Marty um that, that was tough because that, that was basically just that I had been playing well for two months coming in because I thought he played a lot better than I did for that entire match uh if you had to ask him about it he would reference there was a uh I think I was down match point and he knew I was going t big I was on the ad side you know he was just convinced he had seen it since we were 14 years old well,
3: you're going to his weakness. I mean, let's be honest.
1: Well, I was going to his weakness, but it's also the, the serve that I wanted to hit at that moment. Um, so he just sold out that way, and I aced him with about an 87-mile-an-hour kicker out wide to the back end. And, and we kind of had, had this look afterwards where he was like, I didn't think you I didn't think you had the balls to hit that serve right there. You know, so it was, that, that's probably the moment that I remember, and I'd, I'd be guessing that that would be the one that he remembered too. I don't know if it was an ace or if he just like shanked it back in out of complete shock that I had actually gone there with a the meatball.
3: It's, it's funny isn't it I mean this is what people don't realize like standing up there to hit a serve this is major calculations going on in your head prior to hitting a serve you know it's like you're like is he gonna know I'm doing this okay he knows I like that serve and you sort of like like you he said he, he probably didn't think you had the balls to go to
1: his strength yeah and, and, and the thing with great returners too is I, I think people when I was serving well people want they're like oh mix it up I'm like for what if I'm hitting big and the guy can't, but like great returners, like Mar- I think Marty on the backhand side is a great returner. When you were against guys like Leighton or Andre, you had to throw, like you couldn't mix it up at like 115. Like you had to mix it up at like 87 for it to be effective. Like you had to throw an absolute shocker in there. And so I, I, I threw that in against Marty and I, don't, I, I still, to this day, I don't, I don't think he believes that I actually hit that serve to him at that moment. it was probably a bad decision
3: well well technically no there's no bad decision if you win the point that's what i say um so you know us open you you know you're this kid you go in there you've got all this confidence um take me through a little bit of that the open and just a couple of the really important moments that you particularly remember because there's always one or two moments in a tournament like shit that made the difference
1: so there's three, there's three things, and, and a couple of them happened before the tournament started. I remember I'd, I'd come in, I was on the street. That was probably the only time I went into a slam in my entire career where I actually thought that I was the guy to beat at that slam, right? Even if I was ranked one or two, you know, there was always Roger, where it's like if you had to put money on it, he would probably be the guy, and I was just trying to steal one from him, right? So that was like the nature of the relationship for a decade. But that, that tournament, I actually felt like I was better – than anyone going in at a beaten Roger in, in Canada. Um, but the only person I had lost to the entire summer was, was Tim Henman. His ranking was down. I think he'd missed some time, but I lost to him. I had match points and lost to him in DC. And so draw comes out at the U S open. Henman ranked 33 in the world, unseated first round. I draw Tim Henman. No, who, who I like hated playing against. Cause like the guys who could chip my, my surf back and get to neutral. I didn't like playing those guys. I didn't like playing Tim or, or, or Roger, Roger, guys that, I liked actually playing the the returners that took big swings, you know, and they were great returners, but I hated the guys who could get it down to my back and then all of a sudden I was using my shovel. So, so I first round, I draw Henman. So I was like, it, it made the practice week of what should be like, okay, I'm coming into this. I'm confident. I had a great summer. I should have a yourself. Yeah, yeah. And and then the draw comes out. I'm like, Henman, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That, there's literally one guy who I don't want a piece of. Um, in the quarters, much less first round, and so got through him in straight sets somehow. And then second round, I had to play Lubacic. So it was like, like for me, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm going, wait a minute, this is brutal, yeah. You know, so I'm like, this, I, I want like, you know, this is my moment. I don't want to lose in the first or second round. So there's a lot of pressure. And then from there, I kind of, you know, it opened up a little bit. I think I played, I'll get this wrong. Um, I thought I played Soretta, Malise, Schalken. Guys that I had, like, beaten, you know, kind of comfortably before that. And then uh, being down, I, I hear a lot um, and kind of the narrative looking back on my career is maybe I should have won, you know, a slam or, or, or two more. Um, I, I'm like, okay, so maybe I shouldn't have won that I did. You know, I, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have won the Open. I was down two sets and uh, match point in the third set breaker against you know, Banyan and, again, hit a serve that he wasn't – I hit big out wide, like 138, and he was covering tee again. Mm-hmm. um and that turned and I got some momentum and um I remember those matches I hardly remember the final at all I don't, I hardly remember the day of I hardly remember I was kind of locked in and and it was I, I kind of came and just started taking uppercuts in the final and you know I, I kind of had a little bit of a downhill snowball situation but I specifically remember that that practice week being so stressful because I knew I had Henman and Lubitsch the first two rounds
3: yeah. It was one question I was going to ask you is that, you know, cause I get asked this question about a few players and some people sometimes give shit to certain players. Oh, she should have been better. He should have been better. <laughs> I, I I was thinking from your perspective, do you think that you, do you think you overachieved or underachieved? And that's, you know, fuck. it's so relative, right?
1: But, um. So I, I I don't know how to answer that. I know that, I don't know that I could have squeezed anything more out of, what I had my 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 strengths were really obvious so they probably got the attention over you know I I, here here, here's the way I break it down I served great my entire career I never had the best serve on earth Um, I would say my back end was pointed to as a weakness it got way better over the course of my career to where I could I wouldn't miss it and I could keep it low and I could keep myself out of trouble with it and my slice was actually really good my forehand was overrated after the first four or five years. Um, my shoulder, I had some issues, so I couldn't actually go after a forehand like post 08, maybe. Um, I moved probably a little bit better and obviously had terrible hands and no transition game. So if you bundle all that up, it it shouldn't equate to someone who was really good for a long time. I don't think, I think there were massive deficiencies. Um, so I, I look back, and I don't know if I overachieved or underachieved. I'm not sure I could have squeezed anything else out. I'm not sure that I could have worked harder. Um, you know, so it, wh- wherever wherever it falls, you know, it's, it's, it's fine by me. But there, there, when I was trying to beat the guys that I would have had to beat to win more, not once was like, I, I always felt like I was at a talent deficit as, a, as opposed to the other way. I, I thought I did a really good job of, of beating guys that I was, I was supposed to beat.
3: So I guess inevitably, you know, people, you know, get to hear you sort of talk a little bit openly, but that, that 9 final, mm-hmm. what did, before we get to that, like, what did you learn from the previous matches that you'd played there um, against Roger and lost? Because, you know, you always played him really tight in the finals. It wasn't like you ever really were blown out. I mean, you're set all, I think, in every single final. Um, like, what did you learn from the previous matches before you went into O nine? 9 what you needed to do differently?
1: Um, or can
3: I put this a different way? Like, I always say that your subconscious and your conscious mind are two different things in tennis. Like mm -hmm. the little guy in the back of your shoulder, like I always talk about this, like he's going, yeah, "Eh, I don't think you're good enough. I don't know. Yeah. And then the front of you is going, come on, man, I can do this. But then like in when you won the US Open, I would, you would say that your subconscious and your conscious were fucking, yes, we're doing this together.
1: I think so. I think there's different methods. So, or five finals. I was excited. Oh, four. I was actually like beating him. Right. Yeah. Like I was through the first, you know, we, we got through, we were set all I was up big in the maybe I was up big in set. I don't know what we got. We had a rain delay, but I was like he was hanging on. I was actually kind of blowing him off the court a little bit. At that point, my power was kind of there. Um, in rain came, he switched it up. I was a little shell-shocked. And he just, kind of, to his credit, he took the break, uh, switched it up, wasn't staying back, started coming in a lot more, and kind of took the racket out of my hands a little bit. Um, wanted shorter points. It was a great. I, 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 for all the talent, I don't think Roger gets enough credit for his actual tennis IQ because yeah. people think it's easy for him. Oh, 05, it was kind of wet and, and, and not wet, but like cold. And so that wasn't good for me. I needed the ball to shoot through. I needed, I needed to run it. So he actually ran me out in straights that one. Oh nine. It was, I, it basically was, I was less concerned with the result. Right. So Oh four Oh five was like, I have to win. Otherwise it's, it's bust. Oh nine. I was, I was so committed to. Basically I knew I had to be able to stick my back in to deep parts of the court. And I wasn't just going to come in on crap. So for, A decade he would hit that little chip down to my backhand I'd have to be two or three feet inside the baseline so I had two options I could either bunt it back because I actually can't hit backhand I can't toss on my backhand still to this day and and or I had to hit a chip and he was gonna have a look at a pass and I was hoping he would miss the pass or I would hit a great you know whatever. so I basically said I'm not gonna come in from a compromised position but that required me sticking my backhand whether it was middle or whatever, I basically just wanted to stick it firm all day and at least keep him back um, on that ball, which the margin of error comes down because I'm not just flipping it over the net and trying to come back. I actually had to commit to stick at it, and I actually did it. Um, I think that was probably probably the main difference on why I, I had a, maybe more, uh, a better look at the basket uh, that day, but I, I just wasn't going to come in from compromised positions.
3: Yeah, I actually tortured myself last night because I watched that match. I was uh, obviously, I played uh, the Dubs final that year. And so I was still there and I watched that match and you and I, you know, good friends and I've never wanted someone to win a match so much as I wanted you to win that match. But it's like, I remember, um, you know, I thought, yeah, I haven't watched that match since that year. Um, and so I watched a little bit of it last night. I watched particularly the second set tie break. And I was mm-hmm. like, what happened in that tiebreak, you know? And I sort of went through it a little bit. And <laughs> I guess the one thing, I mean, everybody remembers the volley, you know, that, mm-hmm. you, that you missed. Mm-hmm. I want to know, do you think it was going out or was that just a, t- a total? Yeah.
1: So it wasn't, it was a choke on decision-making, not execution. Yeah. So there was a, there was a kind of a, I haven't really talked about it much just because I don't feel the need to kind Rehab. of rationalize or validate it. Yeah. But there was um there was a, a pretty significant crosswind. Yeah. so how did I actually,
3: ask you about that? Because I didn't realize yeah, it, how windy it was.
1: Floated from one side of the court and I kind of thought it would fade and then there was a, you know, wind kind of, so I was like, oh my God, if I leave this and it kind of floats in and sits, it's just the worst feeling ever. I was like, better, last second, I'm like, better to hit it. Um, and obviously I just flagged it. Uh, but I, I think it was more of a choke on the decision-making side than the actual execution side. Um, I've, I've watched that breaker back once because it came on and I was on a bicycle and it came, I was flipped new channels and it randomly was on like in a thing. And the shot that I was shocked at, I'm not sure if it was before, one point before, one point after the volley, but I unloaded, a I think it was a return and I put it on his shoe tops, maybe behind him. And I think at that point it was, it might've been six one or something in the breaker, and he flipped it off that and stuck a half volley from the baseline cross court. I had no recollection of that shot, like in my, like, because I hadn't watched it. I watched that shot, I go, how are people not talking about that shot as one of the best of all time to like save a Wimbledon potentially? Like, it, it was, and it wasn't even like he was trying to make it. I almost feel like he was over the set and just like, like, like flung it, you know, it was like, okay, if I, I, I don't think he hits that type of aggressive shot at 6'5", as opposed to way down.
3: I tell you what it was because I watched it last night, and I thought the same thing. It was it was about the third shot of the rally. You were sort of in that position of having to rip a forehand because you're kind of out of position.
1: Yeah.
3: Decided to go big down the line, and he was inside the baseline by about three feet, and I you hit, him. you hit it right at his feet, and he just casually just flicks a little half volley backhand cross court into the open yeah. court, and I was like, oh my god! And actually, the commentator said. I don't think people realize how good a shot that was just then. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. for six all, he maybe doesn't make that so easy. He tries to put it in play. Yeah, um, but you were so far off the court, it wasn't. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about the tiebreak was because you had served so well in that tiebreak. And you got mm. big a lot to his back end. And you decide, in the first set serve you hit on your match point, you went body. You went hard body. On my um, match point. Yeah, and you and you missed it. And you missed it. It was the first serve you missed in a long time. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, can you even explain to people with all the noise that happens too, you know, because all the crescendo of crowd noise at 6'5", does that change your pulse rate? Does that make it – rather than just, oh, it's another serve, no big deal. You know, explain to people, like, the difference that feels like when you're all of a sudden it's on your racket.
1: Yeah, I can't remember the reasoning or or, or... – if I actually, I don't remember that choice, really. Um, but, you know, Roger, it's a strange one because you, you you want to pound the back end on the return because his forehand return is, is one of the more underrated shots. Like, he can just kind of stick it. He never is rushed. The back end is great, too, but you can overpower the back end sometimes. Not all the time. He's great. If he's leading that way, it's hard. but you know, that, that's where you're going to win the most first serve free points. I don't know if I just missed it. But the other thing is when he's really extended, when he gets his arms extended, it's this thing where you want to go body, but you're you're playing into his pocket. If he gets extended, he's really good. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I'm assuming that I, I probably thought he was going to guess either way. So by Plus, virtue of his move this way or that way, I probably just wanted to play against his movement on the serve.
3: Here's the thing. It, it, you go up two sets of love. There's no guarantees you're still going to win the match anyway. No, no, no. That's but the
1: thing, the, the thing with that is, like, you'll see, the, the to the crowd point, you'll see John Isner in practice. He can't. He doesn't serve over 125. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, he gets into a match where there's some atmosphere and he's touching 140. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So to your point, it absolutely affects decision-making. It affects adrenaline. It affects a million things on that line, for sure.
3: The one thing that I know for sure after that match is how great um, your wife is in a player box because I swear to you, even when you were winning or losing any of those points, she was just sitting there like, okay, great job. Like there was no movement from her when you went (laughs) went six all in the tight rack. She was like, it's okay, I was just like, I'd be dying. (laughs) She like she should be a poker player.
2: This episode of the racket magazine podcast is brought to you by sergio tacchini revitalizing and disrupting the status quo since 1966 follow them on instagram at sergio tacchini underscore official and go to sergio for more enter the promo code racket Mag at checkout and you'll get 30 percent off your order
3: Another question I wanted to ask you is, I I just want to know, do you realize like how bad you were on clay? What the hell, man? Like?
1: So, yes. And I'm bad enough to have a career winning percentage of I think 65%, matches Uh won. Uh Five titles, uh, three (laughs) semis and masters series events. (laughs) Come on, I'm talking about the French. Yeah, so I will tell you something that, and I talked about it last week or two weeks ago. um, so when it was a, uh, the consistency, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, uh, the consistency of clay in Rome, uh, Hartrue, not so much Madrid, but like, it, it was gritty, and it felt like if you would rub it between your fingers, it felt like salt, right? If you poured salt on your hand, and you rubbed it, and at Roland Garros, it felt like baking powder, or baking, you know, where yeah. where it's like...
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: It, it's slippery and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I could not like as much as I couldn't move on clay in the first place. Once I got to Roland Garros, it was like I'd hit a serve and then I'd basically try to find my feet for the next three seconds. <laughs> so I didn't and because I was kind of a heavy physical mover. I didn't mind the gritty stuff. I wasn't great on it, but at least I felt like I could find my footing. I was, I was lost. Uh, I, I like that slippery crap I hated it I hated it
3: all right well you know it's okay it's okay you want you want a lot as you said you, you, you did okay in your career
1: I was definitely so I, I say that but I, I was a good 50 <laughs> I was pretty bad it was the great neutralizer I, I just, yeah, I just you had a
3: losing it. record uh it's the only losing record at a grand slam was at the French well done Was
1: it? yeah uh, that just means I should have skipped it more
3: yeah, I was wondering why you just didn't tank it and like do the old Roger play and not play the French Open at all or any clay.
1: <laughs> all of my sponsors were French.
3: Got it. Uh huh. Lacoste, Babolat. I see. I see what. Okay. Yep. Alright. Uh, then, then you're forgiving. But hey, then you must. You tried hard. You did your best.
1: You the- I I get yes points for points for effort you we know that we know everyone gets points for effort in pro sports
3: yeah the only thing I really loved about Roland Garros was actually the sliding I mean that's that's all I could do on clay as well so so I'm with you
1: it um, was frustrating. Uh, I my, the best day of my uh, the best day every year uh, was when you left Roland Garros you got on the train you went underwater and you you popped up out of the water and you were in London and the grass was waiting for you
3: and you're on grass yeah exactly um how um how important was it for you like starting your foundation like what are you, what are you doing with it now because it's kind of changed a little bit right
1: yeah it's brutal um so when we started it it was it was like you needed a name uh, you needed a name for a foundation to to do an event right I, I thought it was we did a tennis clinic in a parking lot, so yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I, I think you're just caught up and you try to do something well, and I think we raised $5,000 or something, and you give it away, and you feel good. Um, you know, now to what it's become where we you know, run our own programs, we have direct services, we have you know, a roster of full-time employees. It's a you know, proper organization. We serve 7,000 kids daily in the Austin area, and we expect that number to grow to 40,000 within the next three years. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just come a long way, but I always, I always say that if I travel around and speak at uh, various nonprofit conventions or whatever, it's, I was in the right vacuum. And I don't think tennis gets enough credit for whether it's uh, we have absolute icons of our sport that have actually done more outside of the sport or for social justice causes uh, than they actually did on the court. And that's saying a lot when you're talking about people like Arthur Ashe and, 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 Billie Jean King and, uh, Martina, I don't think Martina gets enough credit and how challenging it is coming out in the eighties as the number one player in the world after having to make a decision to defect when you're 17 or 18 years old. I mean, these are decisions that most people who are 70 couldn't make without high levels of of stress and handle the responsibility. And she's doing it at, you know, uh, an age where you're still trying to figure everything out. So um, you know, then you go to Andre and what he's done in, in Vegas and you know, Roger being a UNICEF ambassador and then saying, you know what, I can actually do this myself and I'm going to build my own schools. Uh, Venus and Serena with literacy programs in South Florida. So the list goes on and on and on. And as you well know, it's, it's just the culture of tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure you get calls to to either uh, MC or play in charity events and people in tennis just show up. They just yep. do, and you know, more so than, than other sports, so um, I, I think I what think we're doing.
3: Been every year. I go down. Yeah. And
1: she's been. So I, I think I, I think what my foundation has become now, um, and 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 something we're very proud of is, um, you know, I think it's just you give a tip of the cap to the the, the culture of tennis, really. Mm-hmm. And in our foundation has nothing to do with tennis. Like we we focus on out of school uh, education, so after school summer programs. Um, and, you know, we got voted the best best summer program in the country last year. Um, but it, it's just the, the, the culture that's instilled in it. When you see people that are better than you on the court, that are better people than you off the court, and they're spending their time doing these things, you know, you, you feel like an absolute loser if you don't actually commit and make something that's sustainable and important.
3: Do you feel a need to talk to the younger American guys to, to do that? Or do they come to you and ask you for advice in doing that and how to do it?
1: Um, no, I, I have, I, it's, I, I would say that I'm probably not hard to find. Um, and I would say that I, I, I don't really get many phone calls. Um, you is know, that, so.
3: Is that, does that make it sad? Is that sad for you? Or do you think that's a little bit of the, you know, their management team are sort of taking over what they're doing or.
1: I don't know, but I, I'm, it's, it's a weird thing for me. Cause I, I, I obviously think there's, there's value to add. Um, but at the same time i think every former player thinks they know everything and I, I always want to be cautious of of not being like well i know you do this and this is the way you, we used to I, I want to be the guy who walked uphill both ways to school back in the day does that make sense yep Absolutely. so you know I, the
3: hard way my friend learning the
1: hard. <laughs> the, the last thing i want to do is, is kind of force my belief system or anything else on on players um in, in any space I, i'm certainly always available um but uh, honestly the, my life is busy enough now not to have to beg to uh to talk to someone
3: yeah and it, and it also helps that you have you know Elton pops in every now and again and sings a few songs for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, not anymore i mean he 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 built our our foundation, he really did um yeah. he played every other year for a decade yeah um you know i, I don 't know how you repay that, but we became a financially viable organization because of him,
3: yeah. Um, A little bit on uh, modern day tennis right now. Um, I kind of get into these wars every now and again. I mean, I know you find that hard to believe, but on Twitter, (laughs) um, about the thought process of this, it's a little controversial right now. I mean, uh, Roger just tweeted out the other day about it's time to join the tours. What are your Mm. thoughts on that? And on top of that question, what do you think about men being best of five, going to best of three in Grand Slams? I want want both your answers to that.
1: No pressure so, so no it's fine i'm not i'm not i'm not scared to not scared to give an opinion um but the the mergers is I, I think it's great in theory i i think as long as you can as long as it creates an asset that is way more valuable than two separate tours then it makes a lot of sense if it if, if you can double your tv deal because you've joined content and you have the ability the you have the flexibility to Give, uh, give the TV people what they want more often. Um, and you kind of hedge your bets with which who, who are the stars now versus who will be the stars in five years, right? So, you know, I, I know I, I kind of asked around, and I know uh, the two biggest ratings that Tennis Channel got last year, and obviously they're not carrying, uh, a, you know, Wimbledon finals or whatever, right? So you take that out of it, but we're, we're for Coco Golf. So, you know, we point to Roger, Rafa, Novak as huge ratings makers, Right but what does it look like in four years? You know, So I, I think it's a safe hedge on, on who your stars will be, right? So before Roger came through in 03, you know, Venus and Serena were, were, were the, the, what everyone was pointing to. And then all of a sudden Roger came and it's shifted a little bit, but it's a safe hedge as long as the asset together is, uh, is, is a win for everyone. And also it's just, you don't wanna hear it, but in the conversation, of combining men's and women's tours. One thing that cannot be undersold is that if the WE tour is more financially viable than the ATB tour coming into the marriage, then they need, there needs to be some sort of prenup and there needs to be some sort of drawdown of, this is what our books look like financially. These are the TV contracts we have in place. You know, if, we, if the WTA tour has a great uh, year end finals package in place for the next seven years, can we come in and poach profits off of that? That's a very complicated conversation. Yeah. My personal belief is you can't. So there almost needs to be a uh, an expiration date on current contracts, of which you can combine the organization now. You can have standalone contract entities, but then as far as like merchandising and everything else, which I think is completely undersold or non-existent in the tennis space, then it makes a lot. Then it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just as easy as an idea of hashtag better together that's fine but our books need to work too because we all are just participants in the business of tennis in some way shape or form
3: yeah yeah i think that's great i think um i think you're you'd be perfect uh, ceo you ready got nothing yeah. else come on man
1: yeah I'm, I'm real good about traveling these days mm-hmm. as, as you can see because you see me once a year sorry my wife just turned on the radio in this room
3: oh how dare brooke
1: how you dare you okay. Um. the other The other thing, the other thing that I want to add to that is everyone's saying, "Oh, unify, unify, unify." And I see, you know, last week the conversation was, or Monday actually, um, the conversation was the ATP Relief Fund. Okay, and it was, it was four and a half million dollars. It was uh, there was a drawdown. Uh, the
3: rankings to pay. Yeah,
1: ranking. Which I thought it should have been based on active prize money leaders, not rankings. But so anyway, but whatever. There was a drawdown. It added up to four and a half million dollars for 450 players okay i can do the math on that it's 10k a player then and then wta comes in slams come in itf comes in it gets boosted up to six million dollars in the proposal but we lose a hundred players on the atp side so the actual price per person came way down by adding all of these different entities right so it 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 shook out to eighty six hundred dollars a player and we lost hundred players on the ATP side. It went from uh, the new proposals for I think 150 to 500. So it was almost subtraction by addition, not necessarily from an ATP to WTA side, but you're bringing in the ITF who actually has no value to really anyone mm-hmm. uh, in, in tennis. And it's a controversial statement, kind of, until you actually think about it. Yeah. Their, their main asset is tens of millions of dollars underwater. It might not be financially viable in three years, And then someone was like, okay, but they're the the voice of the slams. And so I said, I asked a simple question. I said, okay, but what does that mean? And they go, I don't know. Yeah. And I go, if they're the voice of the slams, do you run into, and they're supposed to kind of be the go-between between between everything slams versus other, I go, shouldn't we have heard from them when Roland Garros made their march to that date? Were they in the dark? And they go, oh, well, they didn't know about it. I go, well, then they're not a very good voice of the slams, but they don't know what's going on.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you and I and everyone in, that's in, mostly involved in tennis can say that the the different entities in tennis are completely fucked up. I mean, there's just no uniformity to anything when it comes to tennis, and I think that's a huge problem. And we are seeing it in all its glory right now. There's no question.
1: Yeah, I just I just don't like if we're gonna if there's a merger. I don't think it's. I think you have to have assets to become part of the merger, right? So the WTA obviously has uh, assets. The businesses are generally run the same. They're in the same state. So that all makes a lot of sense. You're not dealing with different LLCs in different states with different taxation policies and all of that, that's very complicated also. But like, why are are we allowing people to have an opinion who don't actually add any value, Mm -hmm. right? So, and then you're running into some complications where I actually yesterday on Tennis Channel, I said, okay, we're gonna merge who's the CEO, who's who's gonna, who's gonna negotiate this deal in order to lose their job as CEO.
3: Yeah, exactly, that's what I was thinking.
1: <laughs> so, Here's
3: the power play of power plays.
1: Yeah, so like, I, I, in theory, it's great on Twitter, um, it's a great soundbite, but the complexities, I, I would actually, I, I'm for it, but I just need to, I, I think it's gonna need a little bit of time to be organized, because if you rush this process and it's not written down the right way, yeah. I think it's going to be anarchy. So I think you have to, I I think you have to say, who do we need at the table? Who can add the most value? You trim the fat. It's like, you're you're not, if you're Apple, you're not going to ask Blockbuster for business advice. So get rid of Blockbuster and let's actually build a company together.
3: All right. I I, I recommend that you're on the, on the future uh, board, right? Not nothing else. You can be on the board. All right. All right. Um, I've had you a long time, but I still wanna ask you, um, do you remember, what was one of the things that you remember on tour that's probably one of the funniest things that's ever happened to you?
1: I can't really say it. Uh,
3: Oh yeah, you can, this is a part. I mean, Darren Cahill told a story how he got a chubby getting a massage. I mean, this is like, we're open forum here.
1: Yeah, I would say I had a lot of fun messing with our practice partners on the Davis Cup squad uh, we probably did things that now you couldn't get away with. What was if it? There, well, we used to we used to give them words that they would have to. So there's a formal speech every 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 week during Davis Cup where we all put on suits and uh, ties, and it was it was the worst. But um, but we had to go. We give the practice partners, you know, very juvenile things like they had to say like reach around or chubby or you know whatever it was. And we would just, every single week, I would fall down laughing. Uh, we did a really terrible thing to Isner one time to his hotel room. It was disgusting. Me, Marty, and James did it. I'm not going to repeat it. But then he came down. Everyone's waiting for him. We all die laughing in the lobby. Like the probably the best times were the, the pranks uh, at Davis Cup. I enjoyed them. They're completely juvenile, completely immature, and uh, I was all in.
3: Is that you think why you played so well at Davis Cup as well? I mean, you have one of the great records at Davis Cup. Is that you would just you just felt like you had your boys there. You had your you just. You felt like truly you as a person, because you're a people person.
1: I, I enjoyed the responsibility of it. Mm. Uh, I took it seriously. I knew that there was a culture. I, I don't know why I played great at it. Uh, I was always decent on the road. I, I had a hard time playing at home for a while just because I was too amped up. Mm. Um, but I, I'm not sure, I'm sure that's all part of it. I, I just actually enjoyed the responsibility and knowing that I had to execute. Yeah. Um, I, I and I it was it was this nice thing of it not being completely uh, selfishly motivated for a given week, right? Mm-hmm. And and I enjoyed that part of it. I didn't get to play college tennis. Um, you were obviously amazing at doubles, so you actually know what what teamwork looks like. Uh, to that point in my career, I had no idea what teamwork looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something I gravitated towards, and I really embraced and I, I enjoyed it.
3: And. Lastly, um, the Hall of Fame speech, which is pretty epic. I mean, look, we all know that you can talk. Um, and that's the pot calling the kettle. So um <laughs> but like that moment was that like cause you know, you were a little testy in press conferences and you like to jab the, you know, mm-hmm. journalists and you'd give the umpire shit and you, you kinda had this people either loved you or hated you. But yeah. did you feel like, all right, t- today's the day to step up and actually let everybody know how much I appreciate everything about what this sport has done for me? Or or was it just just you being you?
1: I don't know that it was that calculated. Um, So the thing that I struggled with is I didn't want it to be a regurgitation of results of my career, right? I didn't want any mention of winning a U.S. Open. I didn't want any mention of Wimbledon finals. I I just felt felt like that was redundant. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, Something, the idea that kind of stuck with me that probably meant the most to me was connecting the eight-year-old version of myself who watched all of these people to the reality of those people actually sitting behind you while you're giving speech. Mm-hmm. Right? So that that meant the most to me and kind of thanking the people along the way. So the hardest thing for me was giving people the respect that they deserve for helping me along the way. Um, and all the while, I wanted to point out the Hall of Famers and the Matches. the the, the things that I saw that I appreciated um, and and I guess it just came out that way but it it was as simple as I just wrote a bunch of sentences down in a notebook and it was probably seven minutes of writing Um, and it was I didn't also want it to be programmed so I would just write uh, seven words that would get me into a thought Mm -hmm. and then kind of just tell the story which was which is much easier for anyone speaking in public it's a lot easier just to kind of so you don't get lost have some sort of order or semblance of order and then kind of just storytellers I I think that resonates maybe a little bit better but it was fun I I was I was shocked I got through without so every time I uh, practiced reading it out loud I broke down I was I was a mess and that was actually a pretty clean run through surprisingly so when the people were there I was was asking the cleanest I didn't think I was gonna get through
3: it yeah it was a big day it was great and it was totally well deserved um so I guess what's next for you? What are you? Doing? I mean, the kids, marriage, keeping that all going. Your foundation, uh, doing a bit of TV right now with Tennis Channel because you're bored as f. Um, like, what? What? What do you see yourself like 20 years from? Would you ever? If someone came to you and said, "Would you coach me for a year?"
1: No. Chance. No. I, so one one of the things that I am pretty uh, steadfast on is is not I don't want to give up my geography again. Um, you know, I, I don't want to play an away game, uh, 80% of the year. Um, and so that's just something I'm, I'm really not going to compromise, especially our, our kids are young and I just, I just want to be present. Um, you know, and it's just, it, I don't know. Every day is a little different you know, the, the, the foundation obviously, uh, is there's something to be done every day. Um, with that, uh, I started a, a real estate company during my career which is the most boring thing you'll ever talk about but 10 years later and uh you know 15 20 year contracts over buildings you bought during you know, when, when you had capital it's 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 that's fun uh, the angel investment side is fun um so it's great because i have enough to do every day but every day is still a little bit different
3: so basically you're saying you've got a lot of shit on your plate and you're all good so that's
1: yeah i think that's right and you know making sure uh my wife doesn't leave me anytime soon that, that takes work also so that's that that's that <laughs>
3: <laughs> well uh, i think that you guys are pretty fucking perfect together so um uh, i think as long as you uh, I, I don't know as long as you keep like putting the toilet seat down
1: <laughs> so m- advice that you didn't ask for like we've we've had separate toilets since the word go
3: so smart
1: you don't see the worst parts of each other like just just leave it separate that's it
3: so that's your that's your advice to every couple.
1: I, if you can, even if it even if it means you got to call dibs on the one down the hallway, I I, I believe in separation of no, poo.
3: I hundred percent agree with that. I was uh, I had a choice a couple of years ago of getting an apartment with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and yeah. I paid, we paid uh, like a thousand dollars extra a month on rent just to have an extra toilet. Cause I was like, I don't need to deal with this. Like it's just, some people are just messier and men tend to be disgusting. Yeah, I think that's a great parental. Uh, I think that's a great- Yeah, that's
1: all, parental, that's all true.
3: Great right. marriage advice. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> right.
1: All
3: right, that's perfect to end on. Uh, Andy, thanks so much. I miss you. I miss Brooke. I miss the kids. Uh, I know you're in North Carolina right now, but um, once this pandemic is over, um, you were gracious enough one time to invite me um, into austin to show me the city and i'd love to come back again and um i miss you guys a lot
1: well let's do it stay safe don't go licking any doorknobs or anything you know
3: yeah i've i've, I've managed to like pull that out of my uh my to do <laughs> <basis. laughs> all
1: right Stubbsy, thank you
3: all right mate see you later say hi to the bye. gang bye
2: <laughs> and that's it for this episode of the racket magazine podcast thanks for listening our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Rogerian and the team at ACAST. Find us at racketmag.com podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers.
0: it.